Welcome back to another episode of The Spooky Rip Jean Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy and I'm so excited to have you guys listening today. Um, so today is Saturday, April 30th, and my first spooky episode posted this morning. So I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say about it. I did keep that one short because one, when you listen to it, everyone, like you'll realize that it's my favorite one of my favorite restaurants to eat at in South Carolina. Um, But it's also a lighter episode, which it only has two ghosts in it. But it's a lighter episode. And I feel like with the darkness we had, and then truthfully with this episode, um, we're going to learn about the 29 missing and murdered children of Atlanta, Georgia, back in 1979 to 1981. Um, So I feel that was a nice break. It was a nice, easy, cute, like cute little story before we get into some rather dark things. But because there's only really two ghosts of Pugin's porch and one being a dog, um, there wasn't a whole lot of info for it, which is why it was under 20 minutes. But like I said, I felt like it was a nice little break, um, especially for all the darkness that we're about to get into. Um, I actually recorded this episode originally the same time that I recorded Pugin's Porch, um, as well as part two of the Eileen murder, like the murders of Eileen Warnos, just because one, Paisley was going through a growth spurt, so she was sleeping like crazy and I was able to, you know, kind of pound it out. But after listening to it, the jets had been flying way too much in that episode for my liking, so I wanted to update it. And then two, I wanted to update it because I had info about victims in here um, that I apparently had lost my notes to and I just found them. And so I wanted to include them um, because I thought it was really, really important. Um, And other than that, there's not much business that I really want to get into um, to start us off. I think we should just jump right into this episode I do want to say it's probably going um I do I know for sure it's going to be two parts the first part I'm going to talk about the victims and what the police and FBI did to lead up to an arrest of someone and then I'm going to stop when we get to the arrest and then um the next episode will go more into who the person was things like that um, just because the first one hit a little over 30 minutes and I know a lot of people have told me that they like that I keep it under 45. Um, and my Eileen Warnos part two was 50 minutes. Um, and that only was because I didn't want to do, you know, a 21, 20 minute episode for a part three. So we will jump right into it. I do want to do a trigger warning real fast. Um, we, like I said, are going to talk about 29 missing and murdered children. Um, there's abuse, there's rape, there's strangulation, things like that. Um, I also want to do a trigger warning because I do cuss in my podcast. Um, so it's definitely not a podcast to listen in front of your kids unless you're okay with your kids hearing it. Either way, I don't care if you don't like your kids hearing the cussing. I don't care if you do like hearing your kids cuss or you're okay with it. I'm just giving you a forewarning that I do cuss in these episodes. So the way that I'm going to do the victims and like 
the timeline of the events is I'm going to do the timeline of the victims first. So the very first victim until the very last from 1979 until 1981. Um, And then what I'm going to do is talk about how the police went about it, how the mayor went about it, how the FBI came involved. And when the FBI came involved, we only had nine kids missing and murdered. So we kind of like do a little travel back into time type of deal. Um, But I will let you know, like, hey, now we're going back. I just want to get the victims out there. I want to get all their names heard because it's very important. All of these kids, um, there's only two females. The rest are little boys. And then like six men. Um, And they are all African-American. And the reason why I'm saying this is one, because it's very important to get out there that minority cases are really, really overlooked. And we will see this in this episode. Um, And then also because um, the police do try to um, make it seem like it would be more of an African-American man doing the killings than any other ethnicity. And the reason why I also point this out is because um, most people think, I know sometimes when I think about it, I feel like the KKK was something that happened super early, like in the 1900s, 1950s, 1960s. Um, But in Atlanta, Georgia, and most of the South, the KKK group was still huge in the 1970s to like, I mean, it's probably honestly still occurring to this day, um, but it was still running rampant in the streets in 1970 to 1990, like we'll see in this case. Um, and so I will go more into everything of the conspiracies behind everything, truthfully what I think happened and things like that. And I know I keep saying, okay, we'll jump right into it, but now we will jump right into it. So everything, like I said, because this is the Georgia episode, took place in Atlanta, um, 1979 to 1981. And our first two victims were actually found together. Um, So Edward Hope Smith, who went by Teddy, was only 14. And Alfred Evans, who went by Q, was 13. And they disappeared four days apart. Uh, Teddy disappeared before Alfred. Both of their bodies were found on July 28th, 1979 in a wooded area, but Teddy had a gunshot wound in his upper back, and these two were believed to be the first victims of the Atlanta child killer. That's what they were calling this murderer. On September 4th, Milton Harvey, who was 14, also went missing. Um, He was running an errand for his mom to the bank, and he went on his little yellow bike, and he was found a week later well, his bike was found a week later in a remote area. Milton wasn't found until November of 1979. In October 20, on October 21st, um, Yusef Bell went missing. He was nine years old. He went to a store to buy something for his neighbor, Eula Birdsong, at Reese Grocery Store on McDaniel Street. Someone saw Yusef at the intersection of McDaniel and Fulton getting into a blue car. He was found dead on November 8th in E.P. Johnson Elementary School by a janitor, and he was found in the clothes he went missing in, but they had masking tape on them. His mom also 
um, pleaded on the news that she just, she was hoping that the killer would drop Yusuf off at a phone, let him call her and she would come pick him up from the phone booth. She didn't care if he, the kidnapper was still there. She just wanted her little boy to come home. Um, Miss Camille Bell is one of the strongest women I've read about. Um, she started a group with the moms of all these missing kids to uh, call the missing and murdered children of Atlanta. And she kept pressure on all of the police chiefs that came through. She kept um, pressure on the mayor. She went to town meetings. She asked questions. She investigated herself. This woman went hard trying to figure out who did this. And I love her for it. So, um, Yusuf Bell had been hit over the head twice and his cause of death was strangulation, but his death wasn't automatically linked to the Atlanta child killer. So now we're fast forwarding to 1980 and our first victim of 1980 was Angel Lanier. She went missing on March 4th. She is the first female victim and she left her house at 4 p.m. to go to a friend's and that's where she was last seen. She was um, wearing an all-denim outfit. Um, she was found on March 10th in a wooded vacant lot along Campbellton Road. Uh, she was, again, wearing the same clothes she went missing in. But this time, she was found with a pair of white underwear in her mouth. And her hands were tied with electrical cord. The underwear was not hers, which is a good sign, meaning she still had her underwear on. And there was no um evidence of rape her cause of death though was strangulation on march 11th jeffrey mathis he was 11 and he disappeared while running errands for his mom as well he was wearing gray jogging pants brown shoes and a white and green shirt um and a few months later a girl said she had saw him get into a blue car with a light skin male and a dark skin male um Jeffrey's body was found in the Woodland area 11 months after he went missing. And because of that, it was impossible to figure out the time of death. On May 18th, Eric Middlebrooks was 15 and he was last seen answering the phone and then leaving in a hurry on his bike with a hammer to fix it. His body was found then May 19th next to his bike in the back of the garage of an Atlanta bar. The bar was next to what the George what was the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. Um, his pockets were turned inside out, chest and arms had stab wounds, and his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Now, three weeks before this, he had testified against three kids in a robbery case. Um, so the reason why I'm saying that is because not all of the murders get linked to the um, male who was arrested for it. Um, and so some of these cases, I don't think the male had done. And, um, Eric was one of the only kids to have it look like he was robbed. On June 9th, Christopher Richardson, who was 12, went missing on his way to a pool. He was last seen walking towards the DeKalb County's Midway Recreation Center in Midway Park. He was wearing blue shorts, blue shirts, 
and a t- uh, blue tennis shoes. His body wasn't found until January of 1981. Um, he was found in unfamiliar swim trunks along with a later victim, Earl Terrell. Um, his cause of death couldn't be determined since he was, um, since it had been six months since he had died. June 22nd, Latonya Wilson, who was seven, was kidnapped out of her room at her parents' apartment. A witness saw two male um, pull up into the parking lot in a blue car. And one male climbed through Latonya's window, pulled her out, and then spoke to the man waiting for him in the parking lot and drove off with her. Her body wasn't found until October 18th in a Finston area at the end of Verbana Street in Atlanta. Now, this was on someone's property, um, and they said that they went to bed that night and nothing was there. Nothing was in their Finston area. They had not seen her, and when they woke up and they went outside, she was there, and they called 911. So, someone in the middle of the night dumped her body there. Um... But she couldn't, her cause of death could also not be established because she um, was decomposed. And they said in the documentary I watched that she was deskeletonized. Um, it's The Missing Kids of Atlanta. I believe it's on HBO Max, which was super good. It's where I got most of my info because um, a lot of the articles really had painted the picture that one person did this. Um, The documentary really showed, I know I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, um, but really showed the, um, what's what I'm looking for? The um, police and mayor kind of sweeping everything under the rug, how they could, there's a specific word I'm looking for and you guys are probably yelling at me about it. Corrupt. That's what I'm looking for. How the police force was corrupt. Articles really wasn't showing it. I actually didn't know that there were um, conspiracies towards this. Of like who could have done it. More people. um, Things like that. The KKK involvement. So yeah. A lot of the info. Most of it. 99% of it. I got from the documentary. And then um, I got a couple stuff from, like, articles, more about, like, the trial in the articles. Just saying. Um, So then on June 23rd, Aaron Weish was 10, and he disappeared after being seen at a local grocery store. And witnesses say he got into a blue Chevy with either one or two black males. A witness said she saw Aaron being led from Tanner's Corner's grocery by a six-foot-tall, 180-pound black male, about 30 years old, with a mustache and goatee. Her description of the car matched the description of a similar car for Jeffrey Mathis' murder and Latanya's murder. Um, Aaron was seen at 6 p.m. at the shopping center. And then on June 24th, Aaron was found under a bridge. And the cause of death for him was asphyxiation from a broken neck suffered from a fall. So our 11th and our 12th murders were Anthony Carter, who was 9, and Earl Terrell, who was 10. Um, Anthony was found stabbed. There was not too much about Earl Terrell. 
On August 20th, Clifford Jones was 13, and he was found dead on August 21st behind a dumpster in the rear of former Hollywood Plaza Shopping Center. He had originally been at the grocery store with his family. Um, his mom had a ton of sister, well, siblings. So the youngest of the siblings was around um, Clifford's age. And so him and his aunt and a bunch of his siblings went to um, the grocery store. And he had asked if he could stay outside the grocery store uh, to like help people put their groceries away and make like a dollar each time. Um, he just wanted to earn a little bit of money. And when they were done grocery shopping, uh, his aunt had asked one of Clifford's brothers to go s let him know that they were about to leave. And when he went outside, he, that's when they realized he was missing. Now, at first, they didn't think anything of it. They thought maybe he had just walked home because no one really wanted his help loading the groceries. Um, but when they got home, they had realized he wasn't there. And that's when his mom called it in that he was missing. Um... Then on the 21st, when he was found, at 11 p.m., the police came with a pic of the child that they had found, and his mom confirmed that it was Clifford. Watching this interview, it was so sad. His aunt was like, I'm so sorry, sissy. I'm so sorry. And she's like, it's not your fault. Like, none of this is your fault. We're still a family. I love you. And they were, like, crying, and I was crying, and I was a hot mess, and I wasn't even there, but... It was so hard because back then, it was a different time. It was a different time. And kids could just go off and walk a couple miles away to go get stuff. Like, kids were buying cigarettes for their parents. Um, and so, it wasn't anyone's fault. Like, this was just what the times were. Um, on September 14th, Darren Glass, who was only 10, was reported missing. And sadly, his body has never been recovered. On October 9th, Charles Stevens, who was 12, became our 15th victim, and he was found on October 10th. His cause of death was suffocation. On November 1st, Aaron Jackson went missing. He was only nine. Um, he was found November 2nd, and he was lying face up in a riverbank. His cause of death was strangulation. On November 30th, Patrick Rogers, 16, um, was found on December 7th in the Chattahoochee River. He knew several of the victims. Um, they all kind of came from the same neighborhood, neighborhood, and police suspected that he had been dropped from the bridge above. Like, that's how his body was dumped. Now, January 3rd of 1981, we get our first victim of the year, um, the 18th victim overall, and his name was Luby Jeter. He was 14. He was found on February 5th. Um, uh, in January, they're not for sure of the day, but Terry Pugh, who was 15, um, was friends with Luby. He went missing, and then a um, anonymous caller told the police where to find Terry's body. He actually lived in the same apartment complex, like the same apartment building, as Teddy, who Teddy was murdered in 1979. Um, so now we have our 21st victim. His name is Patrick Baltazar. All of the victims I'm about to announce went missing in February and March of 1981. So we have pa Patrick Baltazar. He was 22. We have Joseph Bell, who was 15. We have Timothy Hill, who was 13. We have Curtis Walker, who was 13. 
We have Michael McIntosh, who was 23. We have Eddie Duncan, who was 21. And Eddie Duncan was actually our first male victim. April, um, Larry Rogers, who was 20, went missing. Same with Johnny Porter, who was 28. And same with Jimmy Ray Payne, who was 21. They were all murdered, but John Porter and Jimmy Ray Payne were ex-convicts who were serving time for burglary. Now, that really doesn't have much to do with why they were killed. Um, it was just brought up in the documentary, so I just brought it up. On May 12th, we have our 30th victim. His name was William Billy Star Barrett. He went by Billy Star. Isn't that so sweet? He was 17 years old. Um, now, at this point, FBI agents are involved. So, we're kind of fast forwarding in time with the FBI agents. When I go to talk about the whole police and when the FBI agents come in, they've been involved for a year or so by now. So, FBI agents found his body on the curb in a wooded area near his home. Now, a 32-year-old Harold Wood was a custodian from Southwest High School. And his car happened to run out of gas. And so, he was going to grab gas. And when he was, like, walking there, he saw a black male looking at the curb where Billy was found. Um, and, like... He had been in a white and blue Cadillac. So, it's the color and kind of the same description as past victims have been seen getting into. On May 31st, Nathaniel Carter, who was 27, was last seen by Robert I. Henry at the entrance of Rialto. I'm so sorry. If you're from Atlanta... Or you lived in Atlanta, and I'm pronouncing these wrong. Just leave me be. Just leave me be. Um, But apparently he was holding hands with a man named Wayne Williams. He was found two days after he was seen with Wayne Williams. So during this time, we are now done with talking about the victim. Well, talking about what happened to the victims. We are not done talking about the victims. I will be talking about them way more. But during this time, Atlanta had their first um, black mayor. I don't know why I stuttered so hard right there. Um, probably because his name is Maynard, Maynard Jackson. And so saying Mayor Maynard Jackson tripped me up. So Mayor Jackson, that's what I'm going to say, um, was the first black male of mayor of Atlanta. And police had heard from families that they weren't taking any of these cases seriously because in 1979, We had nine kids in total missing. We had found five. They were all murdered, but we were still missing four kids. And no one was really doing anything about it. Um, Now, Mayor Jackson had said he was going to do all this reform. I'm just going to kind of get out of the way why Mayor Jackson was not a good mayor. Um, His community was a majority of black families. And he had black children dying, dying, and he did nothing about it for a very long time. Um, So he wanted reform. He wanted to recruit more African-Americans into the police force. The problem was that 
other than that, there was not any change. So if an African-American police officer pulled over a white person, let's say for a suspended license, driving on a suspended license, and the African-American officer needed to arrest him, they were not allowed to until a white Supreme officer came in and made sure that, oh yeah, he, yep, that white male needs to go to jail or that white female needs to go to jail. Um, and so he also had a daycare explode. Like someone set off a bomb in a daycare called the Bowen Homes. Four children died and a teacher died. And the whole community thought that the KKK was involved or someone else had planted that bomb. Like the person who had been killing children because they wanted to kill more um, in one mass setting. And he said that there were no, there were no news when the police, like when the families came out that he had no news for them and that the fire department had determined that it was an accident. And, um, they ended up having a town hall meeting and one lady who spoke said, I know you're in a bad spot, but that's what you get being on the other side. And she was saying that like, she knows he's in a bad spot being mayor and now all of a sudden there's this serial killer who is killing the children of his community but that's his job being on that side is trying to figure out like why the police aren't looking into it like he's in charge get it together man um so we are back in time to 1979 um there were search parties created to find the missing kids and at one of them on a Saturday morning, 600 people showed up. Um, now, families, like I said, were not happy with the police. They felt like they weren't taking this seriously, that they just were blowing it under the rug type of deal. Um, so the police took that and they created a list um, with the kids' names on it um, and showed that how much that was to show the families how much of a priority their kids were and they were going to go down the list. Now, the problem was. Because they didn't think some of these kids that had gone missing were related to the Atlanta child killer. Not all the kids were on the list. So there were kids that were just not being noticed. Um, this caused a group called the Guardians Angels. They were just a group of men who teach self-defense to women and kids. They came to Atlanta to teach the kids in these communities self-defense. So, I don't know if you guys have heard of a man named Chimmering Jinga, um, but he was a vigilante leader um, in Atlanta. Before he became a vigilante leader, though, he was trying to dese desegregate the Atlanta College. Um, he had joined the Marines. He had served in Vietnam in 68. Um, sadly, he died at the age of 40 in 1990, but his um, wife had... In the documentary, she talks about how smart and intelligent he was about um, why he had started his vigilante group. Um, and it was mostly black men with bats just patrolling Atlanta. And they would stop cars and they would check the cars to make sure that none of the missing kids were in those cars. They would double check the people. Um, and then they... He started this group because of the mistrust with the police. Because most of the police were white and most of them 
were a part of the KKK. And they had started it because of how, what I said, in, you know, a couple minutes ago about how black officers couldn't make arrests against white people unless they got a white superior officer there so they could talk, like they could make sure that it was an actual arrest, um, which is insane to me. So after this is when the FBI was finally called in. Um, and so they had 100 agents come out to Atlanta and there were two agents for each victim. Uh, there were 30 victims. So some got three agents, depending on the severity of everything. Um, an agent by Mike McComas was assigned to Anthony Carter. Um, Anthony was the one who was found dead in a patch of grass behind a building on Wells Street Southwest. Um, he first saw that they shared the same birthday. Now, he says this in the documentary. He's like, that's what pulled me to him. Like, I was assigned to him, but I made a con connection with him because we shared the same birthday. Now, Agent Mike McComas, little sketchy. He, he seems a little corrupt back then. I mean, I don't know if he's... I mean, once you're corrupt, you're, like, kind of always corrupt. Like, that doesn't ever leave you. Um, like, once you're a cheater, you're always a cheater. People will have that mistrust with you. Um, he says things in the documentary that I'm going to bring up, you know, in this episode and the next episode that are just kind of like, oh, you probably should have done more. Um, so, he had said... That Anthony's home life was a little bit rough. His mom was a sex worker and um, she'd leave for work in the morning and she'd leave him at the house with no lights because she wouldn't pay the electricity bill. So he'd st sit on a mattress on the floor in his living room in the dark, but she would leave him with a McDonald's breakfast. Um, because of this, he would often go outside by himself because he was just lonely and didn't want to sit in the dark. Um, and Anthony was actually stabbed three times. Now, here's where you're going to be like, ooh, Agent Mike, you probably should have done something different. Because he believed that Anthony's mom killed him. Um, but, and he said that she even admitted it to him and another agent by Dick Rodecliffe. The problem is they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute her. And rather than looking into it more, um, they just kind of let it be. Problem is there's no records in any of the FBI files that say she confessed. So we truthfully don't even know if that happened or not. Now, Patrick Rogers was found in the Chattanooga River. Um, and... The news had covered his body. Like, the news came out while he was being pulled out of the water and, like, showed everything. Um, and so, he was put on one of those, like, stretchers with a tarp over his body. Um, and his brother had stayed home from school. Not because his brother was missing. His, um, Isaac's his name. But it's not because Patrick was missing. It was just because Isaac wasn't feeling well that day. Um, and he was watching the news. He didn't realize that it was his brother until when they were pulling um, the cart up into, like, in the grass. Patrick's foot, like, fell out underneath from underneath the tarp. Um, and that's when Isaac realized that it was his brother. Now, um, the police did come that night. Isaac said his mom called him 
in hysterics and was like, that's Patrick, that's Patrick, that's Patrick, like I know it is. And then police came that night. They said that Patrick was on his way to the recording studio to meet with his new manager because he loved to sing and he had been in talent shows like around Atlanta. At this point, celebrities started getting involved. Muhammad Ali donated $40,000 towards the missing kids efforts. And you might be like, girl, $40,000 isn't a whole lot. Like, that's like the medium to get a new car. But due to inflation, that is equivalent to over $100,000 here, like now. Um, it is exactly $126,514. I really hope I said that right. Saying money is not my strong suit. Talking is not my strong suit. Ironic. Um, and Michael Jackson even came out to Atlanta. It didn't say in the documentary whether or not he, like, donated any money or he just came out for search efforts or what. But Michael Jackson came out to Atlanta. Um, now the FBI and the police are both saying that they think that there is more than one killer. There is the Atlanta child killer, but it felt like there was a copycat killer or some of these kids were being murdered by their own family members. Um, FBI did have a profile. They believed, and this is kind of where you're like, oh, do, do better. Um, they believed that the suspect was African-American because they believed since a majority of these families were African-American that he, the killer could get in and get out without being noticed. And with some of the witnesses, like the lady in the Latonia case, Latonia case, my bad, I'm very sorry. Um, she said that she had seen a man climb up into the window, take Latanya, but then talk to another male in the blue car waiting for them, and then they both drove off together with her. Um, the only problem with that is utility workers. Yep, I said it. Because it doesn't matter who you are when you're a utility worker, no one's gonna think about it. You're up in a tree fixing an electric wire. You're down fixing plumbing. You're fixing someone's floors. There's a pipe that's burst. You know, no, there was an FBI agent who said they weren't ruling out. You know, they didn't, with, with them thinking that it was someone who was African-American, they weren't ruling out someone who was white because they, like, it, they just figured it could be someone who could go in and out unnoticed and that's the you know, majority of the people who are living in these houses and apartments. But again, they didn't really look at any other option. They didn't investigate anyone else. They didn't look to see if there had been electrical people out there or someone fixing a floor. They only really focused on the fact that the suspect would be black. So this had really irritated me because I had read some articles and I was fully convinced of who I thought the killer was, which was the person that had been arrested. But then after watching the documentary and actually listening to the FBI agents who worked this case talk, I was, I was dumbfounded because they would say things that would contradict themselves and the interviewers would be like, huh? And they would kind of ask them more. If you hear screaming, it's just Paisley. She's downstairs with Bailey. And I think the dogs are kissing her. I don't know what's going on. She only had a short nap, and so she probably needs a second one. Anyway, um, so they would ask, like, they asked one of the FBI 
FBI agent when he said that the profile was they believed the killer was African-American so they could get in and get out unnoticed. The um, interviewer was like, so why didn't you look into more like white people since the KKK was around? And he goes, we did. We weren't ruling out white people. And the interviewer was like, yeah, but you just said you were in the profile that the person had to be African-American. And he was like, yeah, but we we weren't ruling out anybody. We just believed this. And he was like, okay, but didn't that kind of create a bias? And he's like, absolutely not, because we were still looking at other people, not just African-American people. So a lot of things kind of contradicted themselves with the things they said. Like Agent Mike said that he believed Anthony's mom killed him and that she admitted to it. But then there were no records in FBI records that that would have happened. And you think that if she had confessed, you would have put it in there. Because if you found evidence and later, you know, that she did kill him, you had her confession and you were able to prosecute. But now there's no evidence that she confessed because you didn't put it in the FBI file. So did she really confess? Anyway, back to the profile. Um, They also believed that this person was going to be living with his parents that they would be cautious of media coverage and that they'd be what they called an ambulance chaser, meaning they probably had like a police um, radio so they could hear when calls were being called in. Um, And if there was an ambulance going somewhere, he or she was probably more than likely he was trying to get there as well to um, like see what was going on, stuff like that. So like I said, the FBI agents just got involved. The profile just came out. Um, So it's like 1980. Um, And at this point, we have nine kids missing. Five have been found. We're still missing four. So the FBI agents decided that they were going to go into the woods where the local, in parentheses, thugs hung out. That's what the FBI agent said. And um, on, this happened January 9th. They started searching for the four missing kids at 9 a.m., And at 11 a.m., something caught an agent's eye. And it looked like it was a white milk jug. Um, It was gross looking, he said. He was like, why would someone, like, just leave this out? But then when he went over, he realized that it was a decomposing body. Um, And at this point, at this area, two bodies were found. But they were both at different decomp stages Um, Chris Richardson and Earl Terrell were both found. Um, so this told investigators that he was going to reuse old dump sites that worked. So if a body hadn't been found there yet, he was going to use it again because he got away with it the first time. Um, now in Atlanta, there was a place called the Omni and it was like an arcade. Patrick Baltazar actually had worked there before he was murdered. And that's where a lot of the kids were picked up around. Um, pedophiles also lived in the houses behind the Omni. And a man who was in his 60s named Tom Terrell admitted to having sex with one of the victims, Timothy Hill. Um, Timothy Hill went missing on March 13th. And Tom said that on March 12th, Timothy had stayed the night there. Patrick Baltazar, Timothy Hill, and Joseph Jojo Bell um, had all been to Tom Terrell's house. But this was according to Tom. There wasn't any sort of um, 
like, proof that they had been there. It was just what this man was saying. Now, um, the police and the FBI agents started looking at other revenues um, besides one male. And they believed that it could be someone in the pornography biz business. So they looked into a guy by the name of Mike Thieves. He controlled 40% of the pornography business in Atlanta. And sadly, a majority of that was child porn. This investigation led to three men being arrested for sex for hire rings um, that may have existed for 17 years. Now, it involved over 100 underage boys. And in the trial, um, it took less than two hours for the jury to desi- decide that David Wilcoxon was guilty and he had run a house for child prostitution and photography. Now, I know you guys are probably like, Peyton, you always say sex work, not prostitution. In this case, I said prostitution because sex works a job and that's a choice that some people make. Some people don't have a choice and they have to do it because there's no other option. Um... And that's totally fine. If you can get paid for porn, you can get paid for this. I don't care what you do with your life. Just be good. You know, like, don't kill people. Um, I said child prostitution because these kids didn't have a choice. They were kidnapped. They were sold. Things like that. This was not their choice. So that is, again, why I said prostitution. Now, evidence was found that two of the victims, Earl Terrell and Luby Jeter, had been in Dave Wilcoxon's house. Now, you might be like, okay, so then what happened to the other pedophiles in that neighborhood? Well, they were all investigated and they all came out clean. Well, as clean as one can be for being, you know, a child pedophile, just saying. Um, Now, Isaac Rogers, if you um, remember him, I was talking about him when Patrick Rogers had died. Um, And... And later on, during this time in 1980, Isaac and a friend went to go to his neighbor's house to get junk food um, and just hang out there. Like, it was this little lady he really, really liked and they spent time with. Um, and as he was leaving, though, by himself, a man was at the bottom of the stairs and Isaac said he had kind of come up slow and deliberate. And Isaac turned around to go back into his neighbor's house and he had said if she had been any later on opening the door, he would have been taken too. That's really scary. And that's really scary as a mom. You've already had one of your sons get killed by this man. And now a second one was almost kidnapped by him. Eerie. Super eerie for me. Um, So you must be wondering, like, why? where's the evidence? Like, how have they not collected stuff? Well, they did. The um, Georgia labs the gbi labs had all the victims clothes um on the list that the police had made um they had found hair and green fibers found like on the clothes and they said the green fibers looked like they could have come from like a carpet or a blanket things like that then victims were being found in the river the problem with that is Evidence was being washed away. They were getting more fibers on them from just being in the water and mixing with, like, things that have been thrown in there. Um, so it's kind of hard to differentiate, like, what was from the river and what was from a killer. And then um, the FBI and police realized that all the evidence was just pointing to one killer. Um, Joseph Bell, I'm going to go, like, where people were found in the rivers. I know I talked about the victims, but now I'm going to talk about which of these victims were found in the rivers. 
Joseph Bell, Curtis Walker, and Aaron Jackson were found in the South River. And Patrick, Patrick Rogers, Eddie Duncan, and Timothy Hill, and Jimmy Paines were found in the Chattahoochee River. Murders started in July 1979, and the victims were under 16. But by the time 1981 rolled around, victims went from, be- besides Billy, went from being 16 to being in their 20s. Now that they were starting to find these victims towards the end in rivers, they believed that the victims were being thrown off the bridges. So they decided to do a like surveillance sting operation where they would each night for a month post up at four, like the 14 bridges in Atlanta. So all 30 days that they were out, they didn't find anything at any of the bridges, but bodies kept popping up. So on the last night, they went to one bridge and they had officers on top of the bridge, but a little ways back. So like if a car was driving over it, they wouldn't see those agents. But then they also had police down underneath the bridge. So if something was thrown over and they heard a splash, they could like radio it in and the cop that was up behind like some trees like waiting could come and arrest like pull the car over so here we go it's the last night couldn't have happened at a better time because they they were only going to do this for a month and if nothing came about then they were just done so the police that are at the bottom of the bridge are just hanging out it's middle of the night and then all of a sudden they hear a splash and they look up And there is a car driving over the top of the bridge, obviously, but very, very slow. And the headlights are on. So they radio it in and a police off the two police officers that are in the same car that are up on top of the bridge whip out and they arrest. They pull over this car and the person driving this car goes by the name of Wayne Williams. That is right. Wayne Williams, the man who was walking with um Nathaniel Carter two days before he was found dead and that is where we're gonna stop for today I was gonna kind of go in a two about who Wayne Williams was because the first episode I did was only 30 minutes long this one's like over 45 I don't know what I did different probably because I went on a rant about how mad I was about the FBI kind of contradicting themselves so sorry Um, and I was like, oh, I could just make this a little bit longer of a, and only have to do one part, but I have to start getting ready because we're going to a crawfish boil tonight. Um, Bailey made friends and they invited us and they just live down the street, but this is the first time I'm meeting them. I'm like sweating thinking about it. I have really bad social anxiety. Um, so I have to get ready for that. I don't know what I'm going to wear. I know what Paisley's wearing. I don't know what I'm going to wear. I need to do my hair and I need to do my makeup and I'm a little nervous if anyone was wondering. So, um, I'm going to stop there and then I'm hoping that I will be able to record part two on Monday when this one's released and have that go out, um, Wednesday or Thursday morning. And then we move on to Hawaii. I actually have never heard of any serial killers from Hawaii, so I'm very excited about that. If there's not a serial killer in Hawaii, I'll probably do, like, the most, like, missing case or something like that. Whatever I can find. 
Um, so with that being said, I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend because it's Saturday. And I hope since you'll be listening to this Monday that you have a good start to your week. And I love you all. Bye.